Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. The town of Natchez takes its name from the thriving Native American people who lived there when the French built Fort Rosalie in 1760. Natchez is the oldest European settlement on the Mississippi River, and it has seen control by Native nations, the French, English, Spanish, and finally, the United States. Because of those early interactions between Native people, enslaved Africans, and Europeans, rules, both written and unwritten, that were developed in the Natchez region 300 years ago continue to shape aspects of contemporary life. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. Our guest today is Christian Pennon, whose award-winning book, Complexions of Empire, looks deeply at those different groups, their relationships, and the lasting effects of that era. So your book looks at the Natchez district to see how enslaved people and natives navigated British, Spanish, French, and U.S. legal systems, and the effect that different conceptions of racial complexions had on the establishment of plantations and westward expansion. That's a lot to dig into. Why was Natchez so well-suited for this study? Well, frankly, because Natchez is this focal point for many historians in the antebellum period. Mm -hmm. Like it is, you know, the richest town in in the nation per capita because of the labor of the enslaved. It is the center of Mississippi's, some of the richest people, not just in the state, but in the nation. Um, It is just a symbol of the cotton boom Mm -hmm. and everything that's associated with that, uh, the center of one of the biggest slave markets in the nation. Uh, But all of it is antebellum. And what's sort of not... (laughs) hasn't really been covered in in specific detail and not of some of the news methodology hasn't really been leveraged to understand is what comes before that. Mm -hmm. You know, so right now Natchez is this thing that has a, certainly a history before, but it is prominent, most prominent in its antebellum history. And it was just, I was always fascinated by what, okay, so how do we get there though? Mm -hmm. What happens before then? You know, it's not like something has to be, had been there before we get to the antebellum period. And then as I as I dug into it and, and kind of tried to figure out what, speci- what exactly was going on, it's this story that covers multiple empires, mm-hmm. multiple legal system systems. And the only thing that really remains constant is in the records is the the way that African people or, or Atlantic Africans or African descendant people resist yeah. their enslavement. Yeah. Um, mostly in my case, based on the source material available and in, in, in through legal means. But it's, you know, I mean, we all know our lawyers these days, but it wasn't any different back in the day. You had to have some pretty decent understanding of, of the law, of mechanisms, of how you can legally defend yourself from being dehumanized or dishumanized in the eye of eyes of white people. And so these people did that and they did it in succession and they adjust mm-hmm. relatively quickly mm-hmm. to newly arriving uh, empires, their cultures and their laws. 
And they, by doing that, they were prompting white people to react, which means that these enslaved people influenced the law of slavery through their actions. Right. So the 17 teens, French, show up in the Natchez district and enslaved Africans are brought along and they encounter a, a vibrant native civilization there. Um, how did those groups interact at first? And, and, and how did the concept of race differ at that time from sort of what we might think of it today? Yeah, so that's, that was the really difficult thing to tease out in that, in that time period and in that chapter, because it's one of the periods where we have sort of a very minimal amount of sources, in particular legal sources, because right. there were no, no courts, for example at that time. And the Natchez people were, and this is based on a lot of other historians' work. And when you say the Natchez people, you mean you were speaking at this point of the Native Americans. Yes, the Natchez, in, yeah, Native Americans, um, which were a loose confederacy of people um, living around what is now the, the, the Natchez mounds. Right. Um, and when the French met them, they encounter people that from a modern perspective were on the decline. Their population was dwindling. They were the last sort of Mississippian culture, um, mount builders that still existed after the Soto had come through. And these people had concepts of um, bondage, of captivity, but they were not the same as the European system that's based on, as I argue, complexion. Um, right. so, so race in our modern understanding is, you know, is an artificial system based on skin color. And at that time it, it was moving toward that, but a lot of people had most every European culture, French, British, Spanish had different ideas about it, but they were all combining various ways of what we modern day would call biology. Mm-hmm. But of course, they had no tools to really look at genes or, or, or you know, stuff like that. So they were following imaginary bloodlines, um, and then they combined that though with um, culture, so dress, language, um, behavior, education. Right. All these built your um, your status uh, and, and sort of in, in quotation marks your race. They used that term, but rather loosely, um, and so. They they looked at Native Americans through that lens. They looked at other Europeans through that lens, and they looked at African people through that. And there's a there's a lot of fluidity. Sort of blackness certainly marked one as somebody coming from the African continent. But there were lots of uh, ways that in both Natchez and French societies, people could pass mm -hmm. from freedom to enslavement and back. And in Natchez, that sort of collides when the French begin to hmm, outlive their welcome quickly. Mm -hmm. And the Natchez are then in turn seeking allies among maybe the African people. Um, to what extent, it's difficult to parse out, mm -hmm. but there were some attempts at that. And then you get the 1729 uprising of the Natchez to oust the French from the district, which with some help from a large portion of the African people, but some of the African people also fled downriver, uh, tried to aid 
the French. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty varied reaction. So the Natchez, uh, they see the French arrive. They have expectations of being treated one way. They see then how the French treat the enslaved Africans. They realize that that's a different way. And they see pretty soon that the French intend to treat them more like they're treating the enslaved Africans rather than how they treat other Frenchmen. Correct. So the, the Natchez are, a, as I said, they're in a people in decline, but they, as part of that, their culture had been assimilating other people, other refugee populations that had been displaced um, by the British uh, on the East Coast that had come further west. And so the Natchez simply absorbed them. They, they married them into their, you know, yeah. families. And therefore, their children become Natchez, and that's fine. So when the French show up, that's what the Natchez presume is also the case here. And the French, from acting out of a position of weakness, militarily and, and just strategically, you know, are taking the Natchez's um, uh, <laughs> offer initially yeah. of friendship. But then they build, they try to build you know, larger and larger plantations. And that's when sort of the rubber begins to meet the road and the French are trying to assert their superiority mm -hmm. over the Natchez. And there's this point, at least reported by some French people, they're more friendly to the um, Natchez people, that there's a breaking point where they re recognize that through the example of African people and their treatment, that the French are beginning to parse them just as just like that. So mm -hmm. when there are certain punishments meted out by the French to African people, and then the same punishments are enacted against um, suspicious or suspected Native American perpetrators, the Native Americans are not, they're, they're getting to understand what the French are doing here yeah. symbolically, right? They're treating them the same in status, and that's not something that the Natchez can tolerate. One of the most interesting anecdotes in that early part, you talk about an enslaved African who married a native woman in the elite lineage and was sort of to become a war leader and that the French could not have that happen. Yeah. Um, that's about all we know about this man yeah. is this, that because that's what's in the report that the French offer us or that's available to us. Um, and so the origins are, of this man are sort of shrouded in mystery could be um, uh, an enslaved person that ran away mm -hmm. could have been, um, and, and, and a person from Africa, an African person yeah. that had traveled with the French to Louisiana and had realized that this is not what is, what he expected. So he left for, for greener pastures yeah. and made his way with the Natchez. Either way, when Europeans are beginning to build, um, a society that's heavily dependent on slave labor and the coercion that comes with that, any symbol of an African person being empowered and being in such a position of strength, particularly directly vis-a-vis -vis, um, French arms, yeah. um, is, is a threat, not just in a military and tactical sense, but just in a, an ideological Right. right here, here's the evidence that any enslaved person in the lower, and any French enslaved person in the lower Mississippi Valley needs to understand that what the French are ginning up to why they should be enslaved is wrong. Right. And so the French react very allergic to that fact. Yeah. So the French eventually fade from the scene. The English come in. Um, how how is 
how is that time different for both the enslaved Africans and the natives? So when the British obtained that section of what is then British West Florida um, through the peace negotiations of the peace treaty after the war, of, um, the, the French Indian War in 1763, they sort of encounter a region around Natchez that is very promising agriculturally. Like mm -hmm. everybody recognizes that the soil in Natchez is extraordinarily good mm -hmm. for any kind of staple crop you can kind of try and, and grow there. But it's also this um, place where there's a sort of a power vacuum. Uh, the mm -hmm. Spanish at this point hold New Orleans um, and control the river trade. Um, and you have the now pretty powerful Choctaw and Chickasaw nations still in the area. But Natchez is this place sort of in between. Mm -hmm. The British are technically in charge. Um, but to kind of solidify that, they would have to bring troops and people into the area. And the only way to bring people into the area is to make it attractive to people who come to the area. Right. And the most attractive part of an agricultural society for staple crop at that time is slavery. Mm -hmm. So the British are tasked essentially with presenting the really good land to prospective buyers and settlers, but also enticing them to come, which at this point in time is a pretty far off the beaten path yeah. for, for British settlement, um, to come to this region and to build a, a strong outpost and a strong settlement on enslaved labor, which is in theory relatively easy to do, but in practicality, because New Orleans is closed off, everything essentially has to come through Pensacola or Mobile. And that's a pretty long track. Yeah. And you would have to establish, you know, a supply of enslaved people to come there. And so at this point, in terms of the sources that we have, the only enslaved people we can really adequately identify as coming to the district are coming from the East Coast. So they're, um, they're people that um, were brought there by their enslavers that had either fought for the British in the French and Indian War and had gotten grand grants as pay, essentially, um, or that are now buying up land because they're um, coming from various colonies, but they're kind of sensing the, the rising tensions between the British and the American colonies and they're loyalists and they don't want any part of it. And so they kind of get to another area within the uh, the English realm, so to speak, close by, but they, they can make a killing there too in terms of production, producing um, staple crops. The Grand Village of the Natchez is a 128-acre site with three Native American mounds and a museum exploring the story of the people who inhabited what is now southwest Mississippi circa A.D. 700 to 1730. The Grand Village was their main ceremonial center between 1682 and 1730. During those years, the French entered the region, and initial cordial relations between the two groups eventually deteriorated. In 1729, the Natchez attempted to push the French out of their homelands. A year later, the French returned in force, sacked the Grand Village, and forced the Natchez to leave their homeland as refugees. Two of the earthworks, the Great Sun's Mound and the Temple Mound, have been rebuilt to their original size and shape. The site is open seven days a week, and admission to it and the museum are free. And for the the English, you, you had talked about how there was sort of um, a 
a push and pull between the colonizers and, and those that they classified as non-white as savages. And that um, the ways that they, the, that the colonizers um, intended things to go sometimes met with resistance that were able to derail entirely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty difficult proposition to to go somewhere, to go off in the woods somewhere and carve out, you know, like a farm just to begin with, but then also do that on a larger scale for agricultural production and do it with labor that essentially is coerced by violence. Yeah. Um, and so in the sort of this, this borderland that is then Natchez, it's pretty difficult for the British to do that effectively without the presence or the strong presence of a state that can marshal the requisite power. Mm -hmm. So a um, strong militia, uh, military aid, uh, and so forth. They kind of sort of succeed in Natchez because it does grow, because there's lots of attraction. Again, people know how good the soil is. So the promise is there. Yeah. And people do come, but they're always kind of left to their own devices for the most part. And so they negotiate a whole lot of things by themselves, which can lead to possibilities for, for enslaved people to kind of take a stronger initiative uh, to gain freedom and so forth. The, the problem for me there was also that, uh, again, I didn't have, because the courts were not in Natchez, the courts were in Pensacola. Mm. So any kind of court cases um, never really made it to Pensacola because it was way too far away. Right. So they had a justice of the peace, so things were adjudicated there. Um, and slave sales weren't registered, so it's a... Right. It's a Sort of the, the the hard evidence is kind of missing a little bit for me there to make decisive conclusions about how the enslaved lived. But there's enough there to kind of give some some interesting examples of free people of color who lived in that society who were able to carve out a pretty big space in comparison to what a free person of color would have been able to do in, say, South Carolina or Virginia. Yeah. But the record keeping of the Spanish was pretty exemplary. Yes. And so when they came, the the relationship with those groups uh, changed once again. Yes. In some ways and in other ways, not at all. No, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, that's before anyone sort of gets a, a distinct impression, like slavery was always um, bad. I know it's the wrong word. It's terrible, yeah. um, awful, like any kind of, you know, synonym of that for the enslaved themselves. But when the Spanish came, they brought an entirely different tradition of enslavement to the region, which initially is just theoretical because the laws, right, has have to be explored. The enslaved people have to kind of figure out, okay, so what do these laws actually mean? But fundamentally speaking, the Spanish, through a, through a Catholic tradition um, that their empire was built on and through... Um, essentially being continuously since the Roman Empire in in connection with enslaved people of various kinds, not exclusively African, um, had built a legal system that allowed certain flexibilities for the enslaved people to take advantage of. Um, sort of most importantly, the enslaved people there could initiate a self-purchase on their own. Mm -hmm. And the English English uh, legal system or in the American legal system by extension then too afterwards, 
um, enslaved people legally simply didn't exist. Right. Um, everything that was done in court for an enslaved person had to be done through uh, a white person that stood in. Uh, they could hire a lawyer, sure, but the lawyer was the one who was active in court. And, yeah. and Spanish Anyone court, classified as non-white had no legal standing. Correct. Or really a married woman. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but when the Spanish come, you could, as an enslaved person, address the court, the local court, so you can go to Natchez Courthouse, and you can adjudicate a self-purchase fee with your enslaver and the court. And then that fee is registered by the court and is binding. So once you pay that off, even if you sold, that fee travels with you. Mm -hmm. So if you have made payments of, let's say it's a $500 fee and you've made payment of $200, if you're sold, the next enslaver still only can get off at $300 and you're free. Mm -hmm. um, which in the the English had a system of self-purchase as well, but there's no guarantees. You know, if you, if you, if you, owe, if you owe $500 on yourself as a person, which is a weird concept, but let's say you owe $500. If you have paid $499 and you sold... There's, there's nothing, right. there's no recourse. Um, and so there are various different cultures that the Spanish then begin to enforce, which rankled some of the Anglo-American settlers in the region, But the, and the Spanish had to negotiate that for sure. But the, the court records bear out that there were enslaved people who were quite successful in addressing the courts in figuring out these laws and using that to their advantage. And the Catholic tradition that you talk about for the Spanish was significant as well because it offered a path for their children to gain some legal standing. Correct. So <clears throat> the, um, under the British, I, I am unaware of much of a clergy presence, but very part of the Spanish Empire is both the state and the church. They're both going to be there. And if, if you're born in Spanish colonies, you get baptized and then your baptisms are recorded. And they're doing that for various reasons, various legal reasons. Um, they're, you know, for your lineage to prove paternity, to adjudicate potential claims of um, inheritance. Like these, these like records are really important. What enslaved people then figure out very quickly is that you can also build kinship through these if you get you baptize your children and then you are capable are able to produce in godparents that are you know like socially important in yeah. the white community um there are certain protections there and maybe even most significantly through the through these documents of the church i could actually sort of tease out parents um, there are cases of, you know, black and mixed race children. Um, uh, and there are cases of where freedom would become an issue. If your, uh, parentage is guaranteed though by, by these records, then there's a certain security in that. Yeah. Uh, you can find allies if you've got parents, you know, take their job seriously. There are allies there in the white mm -hmm. community. And so enslaved people tried to be very strategic about that. Yeah. Or they were very strategic about finding free people of color to to be godparents and to take on a role in these infants' lives to protect them in the future if they would become free and kind of understand, you know, show them the way of how you have to act in a society that uses so much enslaved labor right. as a person of color, but 
with, with Freedom Papers. I think that for many Mississippians, you know, we don't really think about or, or know that Natchez is the oldest European settlement on the Mississippi River. It predates New Orleans. And um, I, I heard you speak one time before about this book, and I love what you said, which was that what you tried to do was to tell the story of people we've probably never heard of, but who were instrumental in making Natchez what it is today. And and to me, that's, I mean, the real strength of the book is you you get to take a look at this time period that hasn't been covered as much and that doesn't exist in so many other places um, in Mississippi. And you draw those lines to present day. I mean, I, I tried to at least, um, but ultimately, these enslaved people, these African people, is their labor that that makes Natchez work. And ultimately, if we think about the idea of westward expansion of the country, which we kind of take as a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, but something had to draw people here. I mean, anyone that has been in the summer in Mississippi <laughs> right. and has worked in their garden understands the the combination of heat, mosquitoes, exhaustion, and humidity. Um, and so people had to have a good reason to to make an appearance and to pick uh, you know, Natchez as a settlement. Now, some of that is strategy. So people, for example, the British would only bring in people in April, <laughs> which, you know, if you're from Mississippi, you understand that that Mississippi looks like Hawaii. Yes, yes. In, uh, in April. Right. And then when these people went back and came back in July with their families, <laughs> they uh, they experienced quite a it, bit of a... Yeah, it looked like the, the big island, the volcanic island. Yeah, of, yeah. It's, a, it's a bit of a change. Um, nevertheless, there's this combination of, you know, greed and, the, I mean, the fulfilling of the American dream to... Because you can, as a white person, you know, start with very little and mm-hmm. become very, very rich. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, that labor is done by enslaved people. Um, and it, it's and then they are very much a culture, a part of Amer- Mississippi's culture to this day, um, and they were instrumental in, in creating the state as we know it. Yeah, and so um, and they're they're very 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 famous African American Mississippians, um, and so I tried to add some to the story that. Yeah. Well, it, the book does. I mean, it it includes the stories of the native population of the enslaved black population of the Europeans. And it, it sort of is a nice bridge for the second book that you published last year called Colonial Mississippi, A Borrowed Land. And you co-authored that with Charles Weeks. But tell me about the title of that book. So when Charles and I were sitting down to um, to write this book, we were trying to convey in some ways what I mentioned just just now, this this idea of Mississippi as not being a defined place nor a European place or a European descendant place in its origin. And as a matter of fact, for its first century, when we consider the geographic boundaries that that are Mississippi now, um, Europeans had comparatively little influence. I mean, we're talking about pockets of settlement in, in Natchez, in the Black Hills area, so Vicksburg, a um, little bit, uh, no, Walnut Hills, a um, little bit up in, in Memphis, one-day Memphis, and then the coast. Yeah. But other than that, it was very much controlled by Native Americans. 
And Native Americans, when they were approached by all of these empires, and this we, we take from a, a speech of a chieftain, um, you know, made very clear that they might welcome the European presence, but that it, this is not their native land, right? It is, this is the Native Americans' native land. Um, and uh, so we were kind of like colonial Mississippi story is because of that, because of the presence of all of these different empires, it's very complex. So Natchez allowed me to tell the story relatively straightforward because mm -hmm. it's one place, one region. I can kind of show the shifts. Right. Um, very deep, but but all in the same spot. Correct. And colonial Mississippi is is more laborious to kind of give uh, give readers a decent idea yeah. of how difficult it really was and how many people borrowed land here before it became sort of a defined space right. in 1817. Yeah, I mean, y'all open the the book opens in 1541 with um, the natives sort of quickly speeding DeSoto's uh, expedition right down the Mississippi, and there was never any doubt as to you know how that was going to go. Yeah, um, unfortunately for them, there was enough change initiated by the expedition to um, to kind of speed them along in the long run too. But the Again, it's you know if we start with DeSoto, it's about a 250-year story of resistance, pretty effective resistance yeah. that is then eventually overcome. But so we're talking about a story of 250 years of contact, and then we're talking about statehood, that's uh, 205 years. Right. right. So we're still talking about a balance here that is still up to this, and it's going to get out of favor of Native Americans, but it's still at this point heavily in favor of Native Americans. Yeah. Um, so that's why we thought that this would be appropriate. And that's why we also covered um, big chunks of Native American and African history, African-American peoples in Mississippi's history in here to kind of show, right, if you talk about populations and so forth. Which um, really does distinguish this book from m most, many of the others that, that predate it and deal with the colonial era here. Yeah. Um, I mean, there there's some new research methodologies in there and we draw... And, and we hope really that people get to look at the the end notes and the the, the literature section of the book. We draw on a, a growing number of historians, ethno historians, archaeologists, anthropologists who, who really look into the Lower Mississippi Valley as a pretty significant area. So the focus shifts there, and we were, were lucky enough to draw on a lot of good secondary research that allowed us to write a more encompassing story of Mississippi. So you've now. Set the schedule for yourself to be two books a year moving forward. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what uh, what are the projects that you're working on now? Um, so currently, we're finishing me and Max Gufno from the University of Southern Mississippi. We're finishing up a report for the National Park Service on the folks of the road slave market because they um, I don't know if you listeners are aware, but there the National Park Service was given land right. of the the former slave market in Natchez and they are beginning to build it out as a National Park Service site. And so we're doing sort of the initial report mm -hmm. um, on the slave trade with me doing the, the Spanish part and the early American part and then Max doing the antebellum part more. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a fascinating well, story of that. And again, I mean, one that had been overlooked by the the white power structure that had 
controlled the narrative on the um, pilgrimages. And so you just had a, a little bit of that there. And um, and then other local preservationists picked the story up. So Boxley was one of the Absolutely, yeah. most significant and early it. ones. Yeah. And still does. Still does a tremendous Still job. does. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the, some of the most poignant stories, uh, we did, we talked with, uh, Joshua Rothman about his book and, um, and it, it really is, uh, Natchez has a lot to give. Yep. If you are able to unlock it, <laughs> which is, you know, tricky because of all the things you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, but there is a, I think there is a legitimate attempt by all people involved in Natchez to kind of tell a more involved, more diverse story. Yeah. Well, it's historians like you and Charles Weeks and Rothman and others, uh, and your determination to really mine the information that's there that, that is going to accomplish that. The book is Complexion of Empire in Natchez, Race and Slavery in the Mississippi Borderlands, Christian Pennant. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.